Hello, and welcome to our new podcast show, Breakfast with Minerals. In this series, we'll be sitting down with key influencers in the mineral collecting world to discuss different topics that affect us as a community, all while we're enjoying a hearty breakfast, hence the name of the show. Breakfast with Minerals is a three-way joint venture project that's brought to you courtesy of Blue Cap Productions, the Tucson and Denver Fine Mineral Shows, and Span Mineral Holdings, LLC. Our goal here is to bring these discussions to you, our listening audience, in the hopes that these episodes will spark continuing discussions. Through the kindness of Spanish mineral dealer Jordi Fabre, we've set up a special section on the Friends of Minerals forum site to host these discussions. The link to this site, as well as some of the other new podcasts that Blue Cat Productions will be releasing, will be listed in the show notes. So make sure to check those out. New episodes of Breakfast with Minerals will be recorded at the Tucson Fine Mineral Show, aka the Westward Look Show, and at the Denver Fine Mineral Show, and will be released shortly thereafter. If you have any thoughts or ideas on topics you'd like to hear us discuss, please drop us a line at topics at breakfastwithminerals.com. And with that, let's get started with episode one of Breakfast with Minerals. In this episode, recorded at the 2018 Fine Mineral Show Tucson, Show hosts Gail and Jim Spann sit down with Brian Lees, Dave Waisman, Jamie Newman, Dr. Stephen Neely, and Dr. John Rakovin to discuss the current state of the mineral world and how to prepare it for the next generation. Before we get into the discussion, here's a little bit about each participant. Show host Gail and Jim Spann are a Dallas-based husband and wife collecting team who have only been collecting for 12 years, but have managed to build one of the top mineral collections in the United States. Their collection, consisting of nearly 12,000 mineral specimens, and their eagerness to share has earned them the respect of the mineral collecting community. Gail Spann also serves on the board for the Perot Museum in Dallas, Texas, the Northwest Rice Museum of Rocks and Minerals in Portland, Oregon, and chairs the board of the Mineralogical Record. Gail and Jim also serve on the Mineral Advisory Board of the Peabody Museum at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, and the board of the Hudson Institute of Mineralogy, doing business as Mindat.org. Our first guest is Brian Lees, president of the Collector's Edge Minerals Incorporated in Golden, Colorado, a world-renowned mineral dealership. The Collector's Edge is well known for their numerous mineral specimen mining projects, including discovering the must-have rhodochrosite specimens from the famous Sweet Home Mine. The success of the Sweet Home Mine project helped make rhodochrosite the Colorado State Mineral. Also with us today is Dave Waisman, a passionate mineral collector as well as the show promoter for the fine mineral shows in both Denver and in Tucson. Better known as the Westward Look Show, Dave's fine mineral show Tucson has been the top end and most important mineral show during the Tucson season for the past 17 years. And from Central Park in New York City, we have Jamie Newman with us today, Senior Museum Specialist for the Mineral and Gem Halls at the American Museum of Natural History. The American Museum is currently undergoing a multi-million dollar renovation of the Mineral and Gem Hall, which is scheduled to reopen in 2020. And from the great state of Tennessee, birthplace of the blues and home of the king of rock and roll himself, Mr. Elvis Presley, we have Dr. Stephen Neely, a board-certified orthopedic surgeon for over 35 years working in Lebanon, Tennessee. Stephen is also globally recognized as one of the top independent master collectors of Elmwood calcites and fluorites. 
Our final guest for our show today, hailing from Oxford, Ohio, is Dr. John Rakovin, professor and director of graduate studies at Miami University's Department of Geology and Environmental Earth Sciences. John is also an executive editor at Rocks and Minerals magazine, one of the top and most respected mineral magazines in the world. In 2010, Rakovinite was named in honor of Dr. John Rakovin. So that's our lineup for today. Now let's join our guests as we discuss the current state of the mineral world and how to prepare it for the next generation. Gail, Jim, take it away. Uh, one of the topics we want to touch on today would be what is the general status of what we define as the mineral world? Um, anybody want to start this topic off? Brian, you had some ideas. Excuse me, Steve, for, for uh, no, that's fine. trying to shape the definition of the world market of minerals. It's uh, more expansive than many of us think. Yes, I thought if we were going to talk about the mineral world, we ought to maybe just uh, put it in a framework of what it is. And uh, it's, it's so many different things. And of course, those have changed and continue to change. But, you know, from my perspective, you, you, the mineral world starts with museums, for me, I guess. And uh, uh, you've got the education side of minerals. You've got the buying and selling and trading of minerals. Um, you've got the science of minerals. It's a big, it's a, it's a very broad world of minerals and each one of those is like a leg on a stool I think that needs support and I'm looking forward to talking about those today. Great. Steve, you have some thoughts on that? Yes, yeah, sir. The, uh, when I first started, uh, uh, first off, I have a, a terrible expression, a full expression of a collector gene. You know, if I buy two things that are the same, I now have a collection, no matter what it is. Yeah, we define it as three. <laughs> just took two. So, you know, when I first started, you, uh, you know, I was going to local mineral shows and, and buying little minerals here, there, and yon, and learning about them. And, you know, when, when my interest was first peaked was that the miners from Elmwood used to bring me a mineral specimen and give it to me and as a thank you gift for taking care of them. This was in 1980-81. And I didn't understand what I was getting, but I put them on the shelves. I liked them. I then had an extern whose daddy was a geologist in California, and he sent me a book, mineral text, that said, thank you for being nice to my son. So I was cooked. I had a text. I had some specimens to read about. And I was on my way, but my notice was that there was collectors at all different uh, levels of experience and financial abilities. And, you know, as one aged and dispendable in expendable income increased and your tastes changed, you started buying different uh, things. And this was sort of a compendium of collecting, and it just went on and on. Then uh, when, when Jim and Gail came into the hobby and there was several other people that came in at the top of the hobby, they hadn't gone through the same evolution. Well, it's harder to go through the evolution today because educationally, we're not educating our students, particularly geology. Uh, you know, at Cumberland University, they have a geology course that is, uh, and I've sat in on it, I've given talks to it, it's just a minimal exposure to uh, geology at a, at a local university there in Tennessee. 
So I think we have to look at education and we have to have availability for people to get on the train at any level where they fit and go from there. And, and you know, the, the, when you look down the halls at these shows, the one thing you either see is no hair or gray hair. Very true. And yeah. we need to, to, to have a group of collectors at a much younger age who may be starting out buying uh, Keystone Minerals at Brian's place down at the uh, uh, Tucson Center City, but those things have to be available to them. We have to be able to teach them. And, you know, the trends are moving away from that. And well, the, the, the news magazines, if you will, the mineral magazines, of which John is representing uh, Rocks and Minerals here, is uh, certainly part and parcel of that. When we first started, we were advised to buy all the back issues of both the MR and Rocks and Minerals, which we did. And that was probably the best advice we could have gotten. It, was, it certainly was a great educational reference source especially if you started getting into it and reading. And, and uh, we've been involved with the hobby only about 12 years, but it's been uh, a nonstop education process. And the more we've learned, the more we realize there's that much more to know about this uh, mineral world. And uh, I'm curious to hear, John, if you have some thoughts about what, uh, how the media and the, the, the magazines in particular can contribute to that. Sure, and, and I enjoy everybody's perspective, certainly, a big part of what we're all here for and, and doing. But I think if you look at the broader Tucson, every one of the different shows and things that we don't participate in, we're, we're in a, obviously in a fairly sophisticated um, appreciation of the minerals, but there are people that are here, they, they know nothing, they don't, well I shouldn't say they know nothing, but they have very little educational background in terms of the mineralogy, but they still have an attraction, right? Mm -hmm. And they might be going to different tent shows, they might stumble into the, the more focus mineral show. So there is that broad community. Um, we might not interact with them as much, but they're certainly here. And that's, I think, one of the wonderful things about Tucson is, unlike a lot of smaller shows, this has everything. It's a slice of, mm -hmm. you know, every part of the pie, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a good reason why anybody interested at whatever level should come to Tucson, because it's all here. But um, I think all of that has room for growth. Right, and so somebody who's uninitiated but is interested because somebody gave them a mineral or they picked one up and they found it. Um, I think all kids do that, right? They pick it up and, oh, what is this? They're curious. There's gotta be things around them to satisfy their curiosity and so they can learn more. And the journals are one of those things. Museums are another one of those things. Um, you know, before coming here, I, I went back and read um, Rock Courier series on just being a collector. It's a really fun thing, I, I, and I'll do it again. I recommend it to anybody because it touches on everything. Um, certainly on, on one part of the spectrum, things are changing a lot, but I think there's a lot of, you know, people talk about the golden age of, of minerals and mineral collecting. I don't think there has been a time, certainly in reading and investigating it, where there's been so much available if you're interested to go out and look and find Very at true. every level. I think all of us would uh, have looked to museums as having been a, a, a valuable, if not a starting point, resource and, and a place for bringing young folks and anyone older interested in uh, in minerals. Uh, Jamie, you've, you've spent your well, career in that field. Uh, yeah, uh, what are your thoughts on that? 
But most people I know um, didn't start with a magazine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the wonder of, of looking at any crystal or any rock or any shiny thing um, brings people next usually to the museums because they don't know to subscribe to rocks and minerals yet. So um, we at the American Museum are finally entering our new era and we are renovating our entire new mineral hall and we're very excited about that and we hope to really inspire with um, you know dazzle people and then interest them in the science. We're working very hard to keep the science in, um, in what we do, as I know you understand. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Dave, opinions? Well, I think when Brian started talking about what the mineral world is, it's a many-faceted, forgive the pun, many-faceted uh, uh, aspects of this hobby of ours. There's so much more that we have in the mineral world. There's the mining industry and its role how it plays a part to provide access to some of the places to get the minerals that, that we want to see. There's people that collect uh, as or professional diggers. They go out and they mine. They, they collect things that eventually end up on our, in our shelves and our display cases. There's uh, minerals that I think a lot of the general public doesn't understand how much how many, how much minerals uh, play a role in our life every single solitary day? Every mineral that is common anyway, or the ones that we mine have a use. And we don't, I think the people, there's a little disconnect there that people don't understand that minerals are so much a part of our life. If they did more, they might realize more how fascinating they are. So many things in our life, uh, just look at the table around us, how many metals there are and how many things are in our food products even, or in the electronics that we're using to record this. Every single day, it's so much a part of our life. So if that were more, made more aware to people, they may be more interested in the beauty of minerals and the aesthetics and the, and the artistic expression that these minerals that turn us on so much, how they, it might also turn them on. So I think that's something that we need to get out to people, the, the beauty and the artistic expression. These are little sculptures of nature. They're just little sculptures that you know, are made by chemistry and physics, basically the laws of chemistry and physics. But we love them because of their beauty as we have them in our shelves at home. So that's something I think we can do. Another thing I think that somebody has talked about, the changing mineral world. It's changed a lot in the... In the decades I see around the table, all of us have been in this for you know, a long time, uh, at, least a, at least 10 or 12 years, and many, many more, some of us. Um, <clears throat> there's no more rock shops. Think how many rock shops there used to be. Every single town that you drove through when you were on a family trip had a rock shop. Now we don't drive through them because there's the interstate system. And uh, that's changed, changed tremendously. The, the quality of the minerals, look at some of the really, really old publications and you'll see that the quality of the minerals uh, many years ago is not what it is today. Some, yes, but some of the things on display in shows and in museums far exceed the things that we saw many, many years ago. So that's changed. John, I think we absolutely are in, our, in the golden age of minerals right now. Well, you mentioned uh, uh, something Gail and I are always talking about is how multifaceted this hobby is. Uh, using that word again, it's, Gail's background is, was very much art and color and form and 
mine was much more technically oriented in the, the shape and the chemistry and the structure and the geography and the cultures and you start thinking about all these various aspects that many people have an interest in whether it be chemistry or anthropology or crystallography, mathematics. It's, it's, there's something that appeals to so many different uh, types of interests and people in, uh, uh, in, in our culture, certainly, that uh, this should be a hobby that should be a, appeal to many of those people and trying to get that point across as to, hey, it's not just a rock on the shelf. There's a lot behind that, that uh, as, as you point out, the, the, the commercial and industrial aspects of uh, so many of these minerals, never mind the medicinal and, uh, and, and medical applications are all things that uh, um, undermine or underpin, I should say, this, uh, this hobby. Um, Jamie, we were talking about uh, museums as a beginning point for so many people. Is, yeah. is, is there an educational mm -hmm. program of any sort uh, at, the, at your museum that uh, brings in folks to help educate them? Oh, absolutely. Yes, that's how I got started. And I wasn't a child. Um, you know, like you, I, I started middle age, and um, it was really the museum, the educational program, one of the programs that inspired me, really, at you know, late 40s, to you know, be continue my education and um, become a collections manager. My dream job. Yeah, really. <laughs> and, and you're very good at it. Thank you very much. Um, so. Young people learn differently. They really do. They don't want to necessarily read a large paper and spend time in it. They want quick and fast. So what do you see as a, a good way to get younger people in? Dave? I've always thought at all of the places where you can see minerals, the museums, the shows, the friends and relatives collections, uh, anything, any way to expose them, would be wonderful to have a mentor program. Yeah. A mentor-protege program. If you and, and I and I say this all the time about um, places like I said where you can get exposure is is be a mentor or find one. You know, come to these venues and seek somebody out. And if there's a way for us to promote that, you know. Well, this is an interesting concept because Jim and I are actually sponsoring a young man from Yale University who right. works. Um, as much as he can at the Peabody Museum. And so we have paid for his flight in his hotel, and um, he is going to be helping us put our display in and, and gather all that. Plus, we have a new young man who just turned 29 from the Perot Museum, who we are um, has been coming one day a week to our home and learning about putting together displays, how to handle minerals, how to pack minerals how to get them here, all of those things. So, And we have a, our own assistant uh, the same uh, age, yes. so, so we're, we're training. Um, um, uh, she's not yet to the point of being a collections manager, but that's, that's the direction she's heading in, so, and also a 20-something. So trying to encourage that age group uh, to get involved, and, and, and we think part of the answer to your question, Gail, is they like to communicate among themselves as opposed to us talking down to them is, is try and find some way to create a, a system for these, these younger folks to talk or they don't even talk anymore, text yeah. <laughs> uh, amongst themselves and get together right. I think should be uh, uh, something that you that have we something to, to say to Brian. Well uh, Jim was making my next point for me. I, it's, it's basically the, the avenues for entry into our hobby have changed over the last 30 years. I've been 
I've been involved in, um, our company's been around for 36 years and I've been collecting since I was two. And, and you know, we, we started, <laughs> the first time I could crawl to my neighbor's house, I picked a rock up. <laughs> crawled back home with it and I said, what's this? So, so um, but back in those days, look, look, at, look at the way we had to interact with the mineral world back in those days. Um, we could go to a museum. We could get, there were some few books that you could read. I still have my original geology book. It has a volcano on it. And, and it was, I think this book was written in like 1959 or something. And I was running around with it in the 60s. And then Fred, uh, Dr. Poe's book came out. And everybody used that like a Bible back in the day. There was no internet. There was no way to, to, to have social media so that we could do interchange of ideas. So that slowly, you know, that it was like that for a long time. Mm -hmm. That's why we have this huge group of people, like you were saying, they're, they're either gray or they have hair, it's gray or they have no hair, that grew up with everything that way. And, and uh, some time ago I gave a talk about what I was seeing changing in the world because <clears throat> as our demographic aged, this, this demographic I'm des describing aged, I wasn't seeing the, the, the young upstarts coming in. And that was right at the time this, 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 social res this, this communication social revolution started to happen. This was in the late 90s. And ever since then, we have not seen that, that influx of people at our shows. But that doesn't mean that they're not out there. There's a hidden army of people that is huge out there that's coming in from social media, that, that's supporting the internet, that's coming in for internet auctions and all these other things that we'll be talking about. And we have to reach out to that group. And, 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 and drag them in. And like you said, they don't, they don't communicate the same way that we're used to communicating with. So we have to find ways to reach them and get them to come in. And eventually, they'll get to the museums. Eventually, they'll get to the shows. Because that's critical that they actually see the object. I talk with museums all the time about um, how important the object is. And there have been attempts to make these virtual museums, which are really cool, and they're, and they're artsy, and they're IT-ish. And they're fun, and they maybe do draw some things in, but, but actually having the object's important. So we've got a bridge. We've got to create a bridge between the way people used to uh, discover our world and the way they need to discover it now. I, um, really quickly, as a docent at the Pearl Museum, I watch these children walk in. Almost always they pull their phone up to take a picture and don't actually make eye contact with the mineral. They go from case to case to case with a photo. And sometimes I'll say, what are you going to do with those photos? I'm going to show my mom. But they don't look. They take photos because that's how they capture memories these days. Mm -hmm. You were going to say something, John. I was going to um, continue with what Brian was saying. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, something I've noticed, and it's, it's statistics of small numbers, but as a teacher, as a professor, uh, it's been very rare that I've had students come into our geology program. Many of them will have an interest in minerals, but we're not collectors, have, or weren't self-identifying as collectors or, or having that particular interest. And um, right now, I've got more people, graduates and undergraduates, that are very interested in collecting minerals um, than I've ever had. And as I meet them and talk to them and, and understand where they're coming from, many of them are exactly coming from that direction. Um, they don't know what's available out there in, in terms of seeing more minerals and learning about it other than the university, but they're coming at it from the internet. They have that exposure. Um, and so one of the things I think would be really good in, in the context of what Brian is suggesting is make it very obvious for anybody who's on the internet 
and learning about minerals that way. Here is where you can see them in person, get to this museum, get to this resource, whatever, and start learning or exposing yourself to them that way. Do you find that um, we have some really dynamic rock and gem clubs in, in our area, and so when people have an interest, we often Send them there. tell them to, that they really should join because they actually go on digs every month and mm -hmm. they, they facet there, they do cabochons, rock tumblers, all of those things. And they're willing to work with children. While they're and they're there. very willing. Yeah. So do you see um, more of a, a trend of partnering? And then um, so that when people say, what can my grandson, where can he go? Is this something that you all do or? I think the clubs um, are certainly a place, I always direct them to the clubs, but I, I, in my personal experience, most of the clubs I've belonged to or I currently belong to are in the, um, the aging and the graying um, uh, stage of things. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. new people in the clubs where I've been exposed aren't very many. Mm. Absolutely true. Well, I mean, when you, Brian, described, um, you know, your two-year-old experience with minerals, that's where the passion flared up. You know, it's different than in this conversation. And I think, you know, it's that element of uh, being passionate about finding an object or seeing an object or getting an object that, well, if it happens young, it's really good. I think what uh, the other Brian is doing with encouraging kids is phenomenal, and that's what you have to do. My best experiences as an educator has always been to, you know, in, to mentor somebody, to give someone who's already kind of interested, not the, kid, not the people who are taking pictures for their mm -hmm. parents, but the kids who you can tell they mm -hmm. have the spark. No question. And they are out there. There's no question, you know. Like, they don't want to leave. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what it is. And if you connect, like, if you get an opportunity to connect, they, they are not going to forget that day that you mm -hmm. handed them, you know, a little, it can be really small, but it's a very precious thing. And I think we've all had an experience with a young person in that way. John? I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm, something that we all communicate, or many of us communicate with, are the online, um, um, I don't know what the term is, but Friends of Mineralogy, um, FMF, and MINDAT, they have these chat lines, so we can talk to one another, what's this mineral, what we're doing at Tucson. Have, has anybody ever heard of an online mineral club, where people are just communicating, mm -hmm. rather than meeting in a place, they're doing it online? Facebook has sort of groups that you can go to, but it's not necessarily a club in that sense, but it is an information highway. Mm. There's another um, one. Um, Chris Kyleman, you know, created Kalido, and he created a big chat group inside Kalido. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the first one I know about where it was official, kind of a, uh, an official way to set such a thing up. Would people feel comfortable sending their children into that room? Good question. Or, no. you know. I mean, they are, they're, all the ones I've seen are rated G. But you're right, they have to be monitored somehow. Yes, Steve, did you have? Yeah, basically, you know, I have to agree with John, just putting the piece in their hand. So I don't let a child under 12 come to my office and not leave if their parents say it's okay with a, a, a mineral that I have gotten. You know, I have a hundred of them or so, I let them pick. 
out of a box, and then I give the parent a copy of the MR that Gail and I saved mm -hmm. when they were just going to shred these MRs yep. for mm -hmm. no reason because mm -hmm. they didn't want to pay the storage. So I got four boxes of those. So if an adult comes in the office and asks a picture about a, that I have on the wall of a mineral, they automatically, after their visit, they get an MR to go home with. I don't say, I want you to be a, uh, an MR uh, uh, supporter. I just want you to read this and read it with your child. And, you know, I let the children pick. And, you know, these are not things, they're, they're just minerals. They can see how heavy they are. You have to warn the mom that these can break if they're, if they're shards and they're, and, but, you know, John's idea that kids should have things like, there's nothing like having it in your hand. And, you know, in my area, we don't have a museum. The, we have a museum over in Asheville, which is a long ways for a field trip. We have one down at Tellus. I mean, there's not a plethora of museums of any kind that, that kids can go to. So. You know, that's one of the reasons that Dr. Scoville and I have supported Asheville, because they have, in western North Carolina, they're getting uh, 20,000 kids a year to come through there. That's and that's important. It is. Dave? So, so I think it's wonderful to target, if you will, the children, because they are the advanced collectors of the future. But I think that it's the parent who is going to bring them to the museum. It's the parent who's going to bring them to the club show. It's the parent who's going to. So the parent has to be maybe even even more so in my mind. You know, the real impetus for the child to get involved in the hobby. So I I think of this. Of course, of course, I agree with all of you about getting kids involved. I absolutely do. But I also think that uh, the adults who are so influential in their children's lives. I remember my brother and how he. Uh, was a collector of coins and other things and because of him I think I caught the collecting bug so it was an adult that got me into it so so much and and carried over eventually into into minerals on my own but so I think of how to get people in how to spread the awareness in a big way in a really big picture and I think of how the movie Jurassic Park got us all interested in amber all of a sudden, they were selling amber jewelry in every single store you ever walked in. You know, and then it died out, fine, but now everybody knows what amber is. You know? And, it's look, really, at, and look at the media that brought them in. Yes, exactly. So, in that, in that light, in, I was thinking, how many interview shows there are, or reality shows there are on the television? So, you can imagine somebody interviewing somebody with their mineral case right behind them. The camera's over here, aiming this way, and the interviewer says, well, what is that behind you? Think of the awareness. Think of the immediate huge numbers of people that will go, oh, yeah, what is that? You know, and start getting interested. So we, I, th I like that big picture concept for, for me. We also um, have noticed that schools, schools are a big part of bringing children into mm -hmm. the museums. And maybe a run through, but there are always those children who stop and go, wow, this is in giant geodes and all that stuff. Well, re yes. real quick then. Uh, um, one thing that we could do, or the Friends of Mineralogy could do, or some organization with some power and some monetary backing could do, would be to give a case full of minerals to sit in the, on the wall or, or on the floor in a hallway that's just a permanent exhibit in every single elementary school we can get it into. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you do that, but I like the idea. Well, 
Well, that's, it's that's a actually ties into one question I have is we were talking a little bit ago um, about how high end collectors have come in and you have these high priced uh, um, mineral specimens, but in the process, and this should really be a question for Brian. My, my expectation is that as you're looking for that big whiz-bang top dollar piece that you're finding several thousand others of, uh, that would never end up on your shelf but, but are interesting minerals that could be either given away or sold for a few dollars uh, um, every time you're looking for that big whiz-bang. Is that a correct uh, premise? Well, the big whiz-bang item, actually they're fairly few and far between and rare. When you get one of those things, um, you, like to, you like to show it, you promote it. It actually brings a lot of excitement and enthusiasm, it, it, enthusiasm into the hobby. Depending on what it is, it actually transcends the boundary between the top collectors to the low. Mm -hmm. Think about the Hope Diamond. It's probably the most viewed object in the United States. You know, you know, and it's, you know, it's not for sale, but it's a whiz-bang item. And how many billion, millions and billions of little diamonds get sold as a result of that kind of thing? So you're right. It's, it's very vertically integrated. For every one of those great things you see, there is at least 10,000, no, 100,000, at least 100,000 items underneath of that, that that are actually the things that are turning. Mm -hmm. Maybe the corollary to that. And that brings in all the people. We, we, we frequently hear uh, grumbling about uh, uh, folks who've come in with lots of cash and driven the, the market uh, too high. Well, that's, that's a misnomer if there ever was it, one. It if absolutely anything, is. The golden age of uh, uh, youngsters and, and, and folks who don't have much in the way of uh, uh, financing can acquire some beautiful things for well, next to nothing. What happens is when those big big items eventually sell to these collectors, these mythic, I mean, there are a few collectors in the world that'll pay these, these prices. Great. All of that money trickles, a lot of that money trickles right back into the market. It supports the diggers. The diggers get excited because they think maybe I'll be the next guy yeah, who gets to find that. And it trickles, it trickles down. We must have these top collectors. It's, a, it's as a vital, important part of our hobby as any other section of it. If nothing else, it, uh, it, it greases those, uh, those folks who might otherwise sit back and say, ah, it's too much work to go mining today, but uh, oh, I Look might get that. that big payday. I'm going to go do it. I'll come home with a bucket full of stuff. A miner's always a foot away from a million dollars. That's a good way to put it. Steve, you have any thoughts? Yeah, you know, John Culberson uh, collects Elmwood. John is a congressman out of uh, Houston. And he and I actually have spent two visits with the folks at uh, Elmwood, uh, telling them trying to convince them that they're destroying uh, God's treasures and educational vehicles. And both times after three or four hours, we thought we'd gotten the point across until the day following our visit. And those same people, they're in business to mine ore and not collect specimens. And when the miner is collecting specimens, He's not mining ore and he's hurting the bottom line and they don't have enough vision to see that those specimens could just be added right on to the bottom line. But, you know, they tried with Brian to uh, allow the mining of the specimens. They actually lended a deaf ear to Mr. Culberson and myself 
And, you know, we said there was universities throughout the country, museums throughout the country that uh, would love to have these things that they were throwing dynamite in the pockets. And that's the way they were keeping them from finding the light of day. And so it's not just education on the level of the kids, it's education on the level of corporations. Yeah. This is a big company. And we have asked, I have, you know, that they let Brian have a SWAT team and have three miners or four miners that he chooses that when one of those pockets is hit, they call those guys and give them 48 hours to harvest that, and then they go back to having the auctions or let Brian sell it for them. So the last time I was there, just briefly, they were complaining that one of their drivers had driven too fast and hit the side of one of the ore trains, and it was going to cost $20,000. Well, I showed them a picture of uh, calcite on fluorite that came out of one of their uh, uh, areas, and I said, you know, right there is your repair. I said, why don't you see that this is bottom line money, and all you have to do is, is, is have somebody that understands how to market that, basically, Brian, and let these people harvest it, and let them be taught how to harvest it, you know, by Brian, and then give it to the universities, give it to the schools, and then sell the top pieces in an auction, or, or let Brian sell them, and, and you all arrive at some uh, uh, formula for how the revenues are split. And, you know, initially the uh, head of the mine thought this was a great idea until he thought about people not mining ore. And, you know, they just refused. And I gave him a copy of the Van King's book on the Garden of Crystals and showed him that chapter and told him how much each of those things could bring in today's market. And, you know, so the next day they had hit a pocket, and what did they do? They just pushed muck up in front of it to keep anybody from getting into it. I mean, just totally, you know, we're just not going to listen to what you're saying. So, you know, I don't think they doubted. They have computers. They look at the websites. They know how much these things cost. I don't know whether it's worry on injury while they're in these pockets. I think that's a, a big problem. Time off work, lost time mine, because you were harvesting specimens. But you could get some, these guys are, are, are people that could be taught, they could be pros, and they could, could do this job. But, you know, you got to educate the corporations as well. Well, some of the finest specimens that have ever come out have been by the miners' lunchbox, so to speak, where they uh, a miner might see something as being very beautiful and valuable. You know, over the over the history of mining, um, they've it's always very hard if you make twenty bucks an hour exactly. and you see five thousand lying on the floor, not putting that in your lunchbox. Exactly, right? and we're and grateful because many many things have been. You saved. know, I'm not the management's <laughs> favorite person up there. I'm sure. Uh, there's just no question, and. You know, to the point that they were trying to scheme how to, to prosecute people for stolen property, but they don't make a market in those things. They don't have a sale. You know, they have a nickel's worth of zinc on the, on the piece. That's all. Yes. And so, 
what, what do we think are some of the solutions to... I don't think you can do better than have a congressman up there well, with yeah, our yeah. congressman talking to him saying this is a way that the mining industry could make a lot of friends in Washington, D.C. for mining and mining laws and all of those things. I mean, here's the congressman telling them that. So when Mimshaw, whatever they are, I don't know what the mining... Mshaw. Mshaw is there because the fuse doesn't go off and, you know, they have a forced close, you know, so they lose two or three days of mining. You know, have some friends that you can go to. So what did they do? They called me and said, would you call Dr. Uh, Mr. Culberson so he could come up? John was good enough to go up there and go underground with the inspectors. I mean, you know, how much of a friend can you have? Didn't change the policy one iota. There must be somewhere where the opposite, with the positive side of that. I mean, I'm, I, I don't have know what it is. I have not seen it, and we have spent time and time again trying we, to. We've seen other countries where, yeah, I yes. mean, you've seen other countries where, you know, people, minors were educated, yes. and um, they saw the value. I mean, it, it's not even education, it's seeing the profit motive. And, I, uh, you know, in China, we heard, oh, they used to blow everything up, and now they know. I think there may be, there's that. an excellent example in uh, South Africa. Desmond yeah. Sacco in the Schwanning Mines has uh, a designated uh, collecting team. They're not miners. They're um, specimen collectors that when they come across something, the miners go on to a different part of the mine to mm -hmm. do their digging and, and, and pull out the ore and let the uh, collectors uh, uh, pull the specimens out, and they have a sharing arrangement with the mine company who, who receives some significant benefit from the value of those minerals uh, uh, without obviously destroying them and, and uh, disrupting the mine flow too much, and then they can, when they're finished, go back in. Uh, it's, it's, I think the answer is, is not so much diplomacy, as, as Steve, you're, you're referring to is at the end of the day is the bottom line. How can yeah. I make it economically attractive to me? to believe that Brian had given them a, a huge proposal that would have was written in their favor. I mean, in truth. And I just thought well, these people have to take this. And, you know, they would have added on some of those pockets in 2078 area a million dollars to their bottom line just for nothing. Yeah. You know, just let somebody be in there for two days or three days and harvest these things. It does beg the question as to whether... Instead uh, of throwing a stick of dynamite and mining it out. I think you alluded to it earlier, maybe not just management you need to educate, but the insurance companies, the folks that say, I'm not going to cover you if you let anybody else in. <laughs> no, that's, that, that's, no that's easily coverable. You can get contractor's liability insurance, but uh, the, 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 the real issue here is that most mining companies don't allow it. The, the, the couple that we've talked about actually are because they're involved with mineral collecting boards, um, but we've... We've, uh, we've made a living at trying to do mining projects, and we've, we have reached out to many, many mining companies. I could give you a litany of, of reasons of why they won't do it, but most of it comes down to a comment Steve made, and that is they don't want to slow down. Mm -hmm. You know, if they've got a shovel operating down there, they're running, let's say they're running a million to two million ounce per year gold operation. You can do the math on that. You know, that's a billion plus per pit. You can imagine if they stopped for f that shovel for five minutes, it would cost them uh, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars, and they're going to get fifty thousand dollars worth of rocks out of it. So, you know, it's a scalable thing. That's that's one of the major reasons that we can't get into those operations. So we we try a different tack.
The tack is more along what Steve said. Look at what the mining company can do to shine. It's saving, it, you know, they, they're saving earth treasures. They're getting these things into museums. They're getting these things into collectors' houses. They're getting all of this great positive energy on the advertisement side. And a couple of mining companies that we worked with did, did it. You know, we have three different mining companies that we've worked with. One still that, that saw the, the wisdom of doing that, and it helped them a lot. It helped them a lot. So educating mining companies is a slow, long process because it's probably the, it's one of the oldest traditional stodgiest uh, type of businesses we have in the United States. Mm -hmm. and, and or the world. They're used to going in this direction and it's really hard. There's a lot of inertia against it. But we can, we just keep knocking away at it. Just keep knocking away at it. We, we've uh, touched on education with, with uh, uh, people generally, but I'm, I swing back to addressing children of some sort. Are there, are there uh, booklets or books, pamphlets or what have you that uh, are geared towards uh, a, 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 a young reader and early? That, that's the age that seems to be the most enthusiastic. If you can catch a, a seven or a nine-year-old uh, uh, with, with uh, minerals and having something more than just a coloring book, but something where they're, if they're really interested in getting into reading and, and uh, delving into it, case in point, uh, our son Tom is a nine-year-old. Uh, when he was really learning to read, I realized that uh, he loved geology and crystallography. He read over the summer 38 books on the subject as his reading assignments, and uh, off it went. He's still in the hobby. But uh, what, is there more like that? There, there are books at all levels. My wife actually wrote one for um, young <laughs> yes. children. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Um, but there are other resources as well to get you to there. So if you're if you don't know, what do you do? You get on the internet and start to look. And I think one of the things that groups that we belong to could do is set up a good set of links to what is out there. One example is the Mineralogical Society of America has Minerals for Kids. It's a site that has content for just anybody surfing the web, content for teachers um, at different levels, so lesson plans and things like that. They get five, I think five to six million hits a year. Um, and there are probably other resources out there, but that's one good one. And I'd love to see it, you know, everybody that has a connection to the mineral business, put a link to the MSA page for idea. a kid. So there's a place, no matter where you're surfing to look for information, you keep getting to those good resources. That's a great idea. And I often put things in my signature in all my emails, what particular board I'm on or whatever. But the idea of having some links every time I send an email would be fantastic. Of course, Facebook is a big part of it as well, and Instagram and all of those social media sites. So having a link that, that we encourage everybody to put out there would be a great part of a solution. Every chapter of the Friends of Mineralogy has a, I believe, has a symposium every year. I go to one every year for the Pacific Northwest chapter. But the children that come even if they're eight or nine or 10 years old, there's very little for them to do but see and hear the same things that are aimed at, at adults. Right. So maybe, yes. maybe there should be an afternoon or at least a talk or a special room or a giveaway room or a touch and feel room or something just for children. And I do see those trends happening. I do see a lot of people are making an investment in children by offering mm -hmm. fluorescence and, and a variety of things, but 
sponsoring them, helping them put cases in shows, helping them go on digs, doing mm -hmm. all of these things. Dave, as a, as a show promoter, do you see that as beneficial to your business, setting up rooms that would do precisely that, that are aimed at the, the children mm -hmm. that, that uh, either the adults can leave or, or participate along with them and, uh, and, and do some, some educational hands-on touchy-feely kind of uh, kind of work I would think that would uh, uh, that would be a great opportunity for every show it's true and I've had people suggest that I have a daycare room so they can leave their kids off and they can go yeah. look for things and another good point uh, that's <laughs> one uh, I've, I've thought about having dealers be required to have giveaways for kids mm -hmm. we've never done that but I think that's a good idea I do like the mentoring program which I mentioned earlier uh, I think that shows have a great way to do that for children. Got to get them to the show first, you know, but then mm -hmm. provide something that keeps their interest. If everybody in this room sponsored somebody, mm -hmm. think about the impact right. of that. Some years ago we had, um, as, me as members of uh, the club in Dallas, uh, Mineralogical Association of Dallas, MAD group, we had one meeting where we, we insisted that you could not come to the meeting unless you brought an under 16-year-old. 16-year-old <laughs> and younger. And, and everybody did. It was, it was, a, it was a great galore. event. And uh, it, it caused quite a lot of buzz. And we had uh, Encouraging a young, folks to be mentors themselves. And the guest speaker was a very a young, young woman who yeah. would, had uh, gone to dig She was on the Crystal Brian's. Hunters uh, program that Brian had put on uh, uh, a year or two before. And boy, she was still enthusiastic and excited. Her talk was about the digs she had done uh, uh, with Amazonites that particular year. And we had pizza, and, <laughs> <laughs> and we gave everybody a bag of rocks with labels on each one uh, to take home. So these are investments in our future. These are the future people who will collect our collections right. and <laughs> donate to our museums and write articles for our publications and go to work for Brian Lee's. So, because you're going to live forever, Brian. Mm. <laughs> uh, thank you, thank you. And we'll be, and we'll be coming to shows and, and getting rooms, so, you know, and learning all of these things. So, what other concepts and ideas do you see as solutions to not just, I mean, you know, I'm a big promoter of getting more women in, um, and it's been very wonderful. But do you, um, do you have any ideas for other groups, diversity, people of color, people I was, different. I was thinking the same thing. Yes. I, so I, how you do know, we, we reach out to other communities? Yes. I mean, I, certainly museums are going to be, and the educational programs. I mean, we, our museum has a huge outreach in public schools. And also a huge educational component of training middle school teachers in particular to um, teach geology because, you know, you, you were talking about that before. That's a really important um, mandate at our museum and those people, you know, that is a solid thing that is having an effect. They have trained, passionate teachers who are going into at-risk middle schools in urban areas and, you know, it, it's already, we've, we've seen, you know, more people come into that program itself. And um, I mean, diversity is something that is happening, you know? right? And we don't see it reflected, just the way the age issue. But I think we will. 
I think that's the natural trend that will happen. Yeah, I think so too. But we can nudge it a bit. Yeah. Is there one of the things that uh, uh, we're much farther away from this than Brian, certainly you are. I'm thinking about what's going on in China and, and their um, mandate, if you will, to uh, educate, whether it be through museums in every, uh, every province and, uh, and, and instruction in geology, if not mineralogy, at the, at the school, if not the high school level. Do, do you have any insight as to what's happening there? Are there lessons we can learn from what they're doing? Well, China's developing its mineral, um, its mineral passion industry hobby in a, in a little bit different way. Like you said, they are, there is a mandate in China to create a uh, provincial natural history museum slash art museum slash um, museum complex in every single province in China. And they've already built many of them. There's several more on the drawing boards. And this is um, the Chinese government's way of, of reaching out and uh, educating its people and giving them an opportunity to see the natural world. So they are building these things at a, at a big, at, at a terrific rate. And these museums are huge. They're brand new. Most of them are brand new. They're building another new one in Beijing, which is going to be just a monster. They're building it over by the birdhouse where the Olympics were. Wow. And uh, they've, they've made a serious commitment to educating um, and bringing new people in, in, into the sciences and the art world. These museums are, are multidisciplinary museums, and they even have one for children that they built in Hunan right next to the, uh, the new Natural History Museum yeah. just for kids. You know, it's a whole thing focused on that. But the way, the interesting thing that's happened in China that we haven't seen here is the influence of women in the, in the, in the world of minerals in China. There's really no distinction. There's almost, there are almost as many women as there are men involved, the, yeah. both on the collecting side, uh, certainly on the dealing side, because they're so family-oriented there. Their whole family's involved if they're selling or buying. Um, on the sales side, you see the men and women working side by side. You don't see that so much here. You see some of it. But a lot more women are coming up, the, up, up that chain in China. Yeah. They don't have the ethnicity that our country has, but in terms of the gender, they're way ahead of, of, of us on that. Hmm. So ironic. It, yes. it, well, it really is. And, and, and uh, I can't help but think that the mineral science aspect of that will greatly benefit that country. I'm, I'm going to point to John as a, as a mineral scientist uh, above and beyond your media role. I think of you primarily as a is a preeminent scientist in the, in the, in the mineral uh, uh, world and, and perhaps even to the point of commercial applications and industrial applications of, uh, of minerals. Do you, do you see there be, uh, being a, more of a need for learning about minerals and, and basic research in that regard? Uh, absolutely, I think. Uh, unfortunately, within the discipline, there has, it's part of just a trend in terms of uh, how you sell yourself, how you deal with funding in, in the community. But uh, mineralogy is something that oftentimes it goes under other names, other umbrellas, um, in part driven by the funding. But mineralogy is never going to go away. It's a fundamental part of the earth sciences. As we were talking about, our societies are sustained by the development of mineral resources. and in medicine, in technological applications, in materials science. Minerals are the foundation of those, and, mm. and many minerals are used in um, materials and technological applications in many, many, many things. So uh, an education in mineralogy is incredibly useful and important. Oftentimes people don't understand that it's mineralogy that they're studying. 
because it's couched in other names, but it's still, you know, a rose is a rose. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. One of one of the uh, what I think is a basic research need yet to come is is uh, focusing on batteries and, and absolutely the, the world is so uh, uh, attuned to renewable resources uh, uh, that's great but unless you can store that electricity that you're generating it's not nearly economic enough the lithium-ion batteries in most of our phones and other yes. things um, trifolite which is a um, uh, iron phosphate mineral is found in pegmatites, and of course, the material that's used is synthetic. The triflite is the cathode in many of those batteries. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yes, triflite lithiophilite. It's the, one of the, the manganese iron points. lithium uh, phosphate olivine structures. When I catch those children going like this at those minerals, <laughs> I say, you know, some of these minerals are in that phone you're holding in your hand. There might yeah. even be a sapphire you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the relation to jewelry, even you know, it's it's that's a hugely educational component um, because people think of jewels as being that way from the start. They don't quite understand the process on how those uh, become those beautiful gemstones. You might want to elaborate a little bit on what's what's happening at the Pro from a cut and rough slash jewelry standpoint. The number one question I'm asked as a docent is, "Where's the bathroom?" The number two question I've asked is, um, do you have my birthstone? Can I see my birthstone? And so we have um, just put together a, a great program of having a case with a rough and cut. But beyond that, if, if Peridot is the, uh, that month's birthstone, we will have a series of cut stones and the minerals from all the places it comes from. And then we will have a beautiful piece of jewelry as well. So we're, we're combining with the jewelry world in Dallas and some hopefully the, beyond. Some of the local uh, uh, jewelers have caught on to, hey, there's an opportunity here, obviously. And uh, uh, that can also be educational in terms of, oh my god, I didn't know this beautiful gem mm -hmm. came from a mineral that's from Cambodia, just pick one country. But that's the power of, of the getting people to be aware of it is, they can relate to jewelry very easily, yes. but they can't relate to where it came from. Right. So back to sources again and, and things like that, a lot of people don't understand. I ask kids where they think copper comes from when I show them a copper mineral, and they say pennies. <laughs> so it's clearly a disconnect. <laughs> they don't understand the process and how it works. That's and, and how many of us... <laughs> how many of us have showed people, shown people our collection and they say, how did you, how did you make that? Yes, yeah. constant. So there's this, uh, uh, they're unaware. So how do we make them aware? Well, that's how Jack Halpern started. He, mm -hmm. he was saying to somebody, I wonder how they made this, and the curator was behind him. And that was the start of that. Yeah, so, right. You know, for us, it was a museum that we first went into, and Jamie, it was to see one of Brian's pieces. Excuse me, Gail. Are you seeing a, a, a cut and rough trend within the museum? Oh, are you we doing always, it more in years? Yeah, always love doing rough and cut. Yeah. That is such a you know, a, in in any context, birthstone or or anything. Don't you? Everyone loves to see rough yeah. and well, cut. It's a conversation to know where, starter, isn't it? Where you know, it comes from. as well. We we discovered uh, uh, fairly early in our our collecting uh, uh, period that that uh, oftentimes as as uh, it was it was the woman who was not the collector who came along to see our collection begrudgingly, yeah. and as while well, the man is looking at the minerals, she's kind of moping around, waiting for is it time to go yet? Until 
she started noticing, oh, there's, there's a gemstone in this case. What's, what's this beautiful jewel? Point out, oh, that, that's, a, pick an example, it's a, it's a sapphire. Here's the crystal right behind it is what it's cut from. And suddenly they start making that connection, looking for other gemstones and asking about the minerals. And uh, on the way home, asking their husbands about, uh, do we have any minerals like that? And how can we do more? And it turned out that uh, that was the avenue yes. to get at least the interest in a lot of the women that uh, might have not otherwise uh, well, when even you paid attention. An emerald comes from North Carolina, they're okay. blown away. Yeah. Yeah. Because they all come from Columbia. <laughs> so it, it, conversations start and you hope that you plant a seed in those conversations. You've inspired me to, to think of a, um, a display that I'm gonna talk to our museum manager about and it will be rough and cut birthstones. <laughs> But next to it, it will be an object that uses that mineral in some technological application and a That's story brilliant. behind That's that. That's a great idea. That'd be Wonderful. a great extension. We've had it on display in a, a private uh, dinner club in Dallas, a cut and rough birthstone uh, cabinet for the last couple of years now. And it's, uh, it's extremely popular in, in, as people go into that club. But we follow adding it up. this aspect to it would be a, it's a great idea. We follow it up with a talk for that dinner club. That's right. That That's ties very well in. attended. Mm -hmm. Steve, any thoughts? No, I agree with all of the uh, parameters that you have uh, touched on. The, the one trend that I have seen in the southeast is the withdrawal of museums for cost. So the Asheville Museum is packed up right now. Uh, you know, so there's 18 or 20,000 kids that are not going to come to that museum. <clears throat> Tellus Museum is trying to pick up, but that's a long ways from uh, Western North Carolina down to Tellus. And, you know, the, the, there is a cost to the building, there is a cost to curatage of the building. And, you know, the, the Pink Palace in Memphis is uh, partially packed up, and I wouldn't really call it a museum, but it, it had lots of objects of art and lots of uh, mineral specimens that have been given through the years. And so, you know, there is less emphasis on the mineral section. It's sort of like, you know, Houston's museum. You know, they redid the Dinosaur Hall and, uh, the minerals were used to, I think, uh, finance some of that. And, you know, now is the mineral hall going to get redone and brought up to the same level? The dinosaur hall is unbelievable. So, you know, money is an issue too. And, you know, a big issue for the smaller museums over where I live. And it's a shame because the kids need these museums not just for minerals, but for exposure to, to a variety of disciplines. We are but it's expensive. It uh -huh. is, and it's always, what can our museums do for us? But it's going back to John Kennedy, it's like, what can we do for our museums? Um, I do notice there is a trend, people are in the museum world are accepting loaners at a, at a greater rate because they cannot afford the contemporary minerals. So perhaps educating people on loaning, not just donating, because we hope the end result is the donation to the museum, but 
people want to see contemporary minerals. They want to see really beautiful, colorful, wonderful objects, big crystals that are, are amazing. Um, and so what can we do? What are some of the things that we can do to enhance our local minerals? I know many around this table already do amazing things with museums, but there are museums that are folding and there are museums that are thriving. And how do we recognize those trends? How do we take those and apply them and help? And my other thought is that many of these museums refuse to change. They're stuck and they're dying. And so, you know, maybe it is a time for some museums to go away and something new to come in, you know, a few years later and, and to be that, that shining example. Um, at the Pearl Museum, we've just done a complete, it's five years old, we've done a complete Centers of Excellence program. And in the Gem and Mineral Hall, I serve on that committee and I'm now on the board of the Pearl. And we are massively upgrading everything in that hall and a little expansion beyond. Um, Including uh, hiring a, a full-time professional staff for the first time. So it's, uh, it's gone to the point of um, lining up the budgeting. Gail was a driver of that. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and we have uh, one of those individuals <coughs> who's already been hired. The, the director is uh, still a, a position open, but uh, uh, the, with the center of excellence idea, they'll be expanding the physical space of the, of the mineral hall in addition to the, uh, the programs and the And the social the aspects. Of it. The joining the local communities and putting displays in at all the shows now, because that's something we were sorely lacking. We weren't rolling up our sleeves and being part of the community. And that community was the mineral and museum community. So um, I felt very strongly about driving that program. And you know, I had to overcome obstacles that took five years to get them to pay serious attention. But they are paying serious attention. Yeah. No small part of that is they realize year in and year out that was the most popular hall in the uh, entire museum. I'm sure that's true in your institution. I'm, I'm told that's regularly the case yeah. at the Smithsonian as well. Uh, well, if people really enjoy that, you ought to be focusing on it, says I say to management. And well, uh, we need to clone Gail then. To, you know, to, you know, well, to I like to get my way. <laughs> not necessarily as a result of Gail, but the Yale Peabody is another example. Here's right. one of the oldest, if not stodgiest, museums in the country that uh, that had a, a, a bit of a makeover in a serious way of its uh, Gem and Mineral Hall uh, uh, just a few years ago with the David Friend Hall. And um, that prodded some of their alumni to realize, oh, maybe there's a chance that any donation I might make could have some good and not just be poured down to uh, the upkeep of an old uh, brick and mortar structure. And uh, they're doing a dramatic uh, renovation and expansion of the, the museum, including uh, converting all of the, the uh, what used to be office space and administration and storage areas into uh, display areas, so it's expanding. And classrooms. With education, expanding uh, uh, their, their mineral uh, viewing and education at the same time. Yeah, there are definite positive trends. And in this and case, it was an alumni who saw the David Friend Hall and thought, this museum is changing and growing and making modern connections. And so he donated a six, six figure? Nine. Nine figure, excuse me, a nine figure donation. Nine. Not counting the pennies, we're told. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> to the museum. So sometimes you have to get the attention um, to show that you're thinking forward to get these things to happen. 
I'm and very, the, very encouraged though by the the changes in museums, the American Museum, the mm -hmm. Perot, the Peabody, the new one coming into Tucson. Was it in the county, old county building, mm -hmm. I believe? Mm -hmm. The Phoenix. Uh, connected with the, uh, and the new, and two, yeah, museum two in Phoenix. Phoenix. So yeah. I'm, I'm really encouraged by the efforts and newness that museums are starting. And the Rice Museum is another one mm -hmm. that's really picking up its game. So I think I'm really encouraged by that. But do we go beyond our own borders? Do we, we encourage mm -hmm. failing or, or, or stagnant or um, museums? And how do we help them? Because it's not just, Americans we want to help. We want to help museums all around the world and perhaps help them with programs or ideas or concepts or marketing. Thoughts? Well, in that regard, several museums need to band together and do that. You know, there's the SMMP that, 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 that has some discussions along those lines. Mm -hmm. From my point, of, from my perspective, I'm on the board of a couple of museums in Denver and we, we do tons of many, many outreach programs where for instance, a museum will reach out to us. They'll say, hey, can we borrow this or that? We always say, yes, you can borrow this, that, this or that. Or we'll do the same thing, or we'll band together, especially locally. And it starts on a local level because there's always a little teeny tiny um, museum someplace that might have five rocks in it. But maybe, maybe they get a thousand kids through their little house mm -hmm. once a year or, or throughout the year. And, and, and we, we have a lot of outreach programs like that. So it can start locally. I mean, and, 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 it, and it can kind of branch out. But um, it's kind of akin to pushing a rope, and I wanted to bring up another topic here. It's way easier to pull one than push one. Mm -hmm. And I think, <laughs> I think you know, we, we take a look at the traditional ways to try to build museums and, 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 and kind of reconstruct the world we're in, and it's working. We've got, you just mentioned, a half a dozen important museums in the United States that are just catching fire. In, um, not to mention our, uh, our national institutions are still are getting good re uh, support and renovation. And that's, that's all really good. But, there's, um, but there are other things that are happening out there that, we're, uh, there's, that are happening out there that maybe we're not paying attention to. And I think we need to look at where people are coming in. There's nobody that studies that. We don't know how people are coming into our hobby. We don't really know how many people are hitting the internet sites. We don't know mm. how many people are hitting the auctions. We don't really know who's surfing the net. I shouldn't say we. Some of us that keep statistics on our websites that have big ones know what we individually get. But as a group, we don't know. But there's a huge group of people coming in there. We don't know the demographic. We can guess. We have an idea what the demographic is. But we're not paying attention to them. The other thing, that we're not paying attention to is some of the things that happened in the last four or five years with some of these television shows that have sprung up around our hobby. Um, case in points, prospectors. There was there were a lot of people that really got down on that show, mm. right? But that show brought in more collectors, more people, and more interest into our hobby um, than anything I can think of. Now, I just said I don't know what the stats are on the internet. That's probably bigger. But in terms of raw interest, people, people that came in looking for a way to express themselves in our mineral world came in through that show. There's, there's, there's um, Mineral Treasure Hunters, that's um, tre the show that, that uh, Thomas Nagin's doing that we've also supported. <clears throat> but the Prospector Show brought in, I want to say, hundreds of thousands of people. Mm. And they were looking for a way to express themselves. I got a call from the Detroit Mineralogical Society 
um, a couple of years ago and they wanted me to give a talk about prospectors um, and its influence because they had, um, this is, a, this is a, a factoid, they had hundreds of people call in to the club, the Michigan Mineralogical Society, asking how they could get involved. Where can we go see rocks and minerals? Unsolicited, they found that number and they called in. That must have been going on all over the country. We saw at these little shows, to big, sh big shows to little shows, we saw hundreds of more people, sometimes thousands coming in, asking to meet the stars of that show, to talk to them. Um, the, you're gonna see a bump in the stats of uh, the statistics of mineral collecting over the next decade or two, and they're all gonna, you're gonna say, how'd you come into this? Oh, I saw this, this show on TV. So pulling, pushing. Um, you know, take a look at how people are reaching out and grab onto it. Maybe support another activity like that. Um, actually, we've been working with the, with the people that produced it, trying to come up with um, a follow-on show for that because it worked so well mm -hmm. to, to bring people in. And, uh, of course, it was, it was a reality show. Of course, it had all the, the, the attendant things that come along with it. But, you know, what do you care? Do you care about the result? Or, you know, is the content important? I mean, it completely circumvents science, education, study. Mm -hmm. But what it does is it brings, it brings the raw material in that we get a chance to shape then. Mm -hmm. And then we can push them into these channels. So, that's You know, Lance Armstrong did more for bicycling and getting people on bicycles than he's ever been given credit for. A huge amount of people started bicycling and getting healthier because of Lance Armstrong. And in the prospectors, I think it appealed to another part of human nature, which was the X marks the spot, discovery, treasure, treasure yeah. hunting. Yeah. And it's, it's all ages. Um, Jim and I were lucky enough to be on the program, and uh, people would come to the museum, and they would, they would say, oh, we watched the show The Prospectors, and I would say, season two, episode eight, I'm in there uh, with my <laughs> husband. And, and, and they were like, oh my gosh, you know, and then they would really delve into asking questions about the people but also what they found and what happened to what they found. They found that, remember when they found that piece, what happened to that piece? And we could tell them, you know? And that was a really big draw for men, women, children, and and It crosses everybody. all boundaries. Yeah. All yeah, boundaries, and boy, they love the idea of being able to find something hidden in the earth that no human being had ever seen before. And that's powerful. So you're right, that show, with all its with sometimes all its silly stuff. things, was Built dynamic. Built-in drama. Built-in drama. Because so many people at the museum say to me, I watch the show The Prospectors or Gold Hunters or whatever the names of all the shows are, and they, the child in them, I think in particular, would love to just go somewhere and dig and find something. I mean, at the end, in the last few years, it, it's canceled down, it's died down, but to get up Mount Antero a couple of years ago, um, used to be able to just drive on up there. You want, if you wanted to search for, wow. this is the source for Colorado Aquamarine. There were so many cars and Jeeps trying to go up, it was a super highway trying to get to the top. Mm. It put a lot of land pressure on it, created other issues. But, but it comes back also to another thing we need to do is support places where people can go actually dig something. Right. And those yes. places are closing down all they over are. the country. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. That's Who a here has not gone digging? See? <laughs> <laughs> No hand went up. <laughs> it seems to be the next, I mean, one of the, the parts of coming into this, this community is you, you sort of dabble in all the aspects that surround this community. I mean, 
you know, we suddenly find ourselves with some petrified wood in our collection and uh, meteorites in our collection and collectible um, Butte, Montana souvenir spoons in our collection. And so I think that the mineral world touches on all sorts of other aspects of collecting as well. And to me, that's, that's keeping these things alive and going. Well, that brings up fee areas. You know, places like the Ocean View, where you go and pay a little bit of money and you screen the dirt all day long. And if you find something, it definitely gets you very excited and gets you turned on. And there's not, there aren't too many of those. No. Maybe that would help too. It gets the hands on. I know there are issues about that, but uh, there aren't very many of those. Like well, there used to be actually more. Arkansas, you can you know go to the diamonds and let's mm -hmm. face it, you'll be there all day. But um, but it's exciting for people, and a it tremendous is. amount of people go there. It's a state park, so it is free, and that is something that we hear people do all the time. Oh, I've been there. Yes, where else can I go? So we we really should have a way to let people know if you go to the Coleman mine, you pay a small fee, you go mm -hmm. dig at the Coleman mm -hmm. mine. You know, these kind of things are what people ask us all the time. In, in England, they're always, excuse me, John, they're always talking about uh, going digging at the dumps. It's the, there's right. no mines active there, generally speaking, but there's lots of dumps with uh, full of minerals mm -hmm. that were disposed. Are there, are there places like that in this country that uh, could be converted into something like that? I can't remember which issue it was, but uh, just a couple years ago, Rocks and Minerals ran an article of uh, fee digging sites all in the, all mm -hmm. of the United States. Mm -hmm. So there is a good list, at least to that time. And how do we promote that? I mean, because yeah. once, you, once you put the magazine down and you're, you know. The state does them. Some, the, for we instance, need to the have club a site. in Butte purchased Crystal Park near Elkhorn Hot Springs, near uh, Dillon, Montana, and now it's a fee area within the. In, within the Forest Service, and that's that's an example of it. So you could, it could be old mining claims that have now been abandoned can be purchased or some are somehow gotten and let out to the public. You know, when I um, I'm with the Friends of Mineralogy as a publicity chair, we need to have these things on sites like that. Just a, a and a simple not I. I I like a website that you can go to and see things, and you can hit them without having to go dig for them, literally. But these, these are some of the things that maybe we can promote in our community to, to list those things, because that is one of the top questions I get is, where can I go dig? And, um, and, and then they're afraid because they hear you can't go digging anymore anywhere you like because it's private property. So they get uh, nervous. Anyway, we are about to wrap up our great breakfast ses session. I'm glad to see everybody ate breakfast while we Thank were talking. Um, any closing thoughts? And if not, we really, really appreciate your all being here. Jim and I are really delighted to get your opinion on things. And, uh, thank you so very much. And that's going to do it for this episode of Breakfast with Minerals. We certainly hope that you enjoyed the show and that you got something worthwhile out of it. If you'd like to continue the conversation started here, we invite you to post your own comments in the Friends of Minerals forum section under Blue Cap Productions in the Mineralogical Magazine section. Again, you can find a link to that site as well as information on other Blue Cat production podcasts in the show notes. And remember, these shows are for you. So don't be shy about sending us ideas and topics you'd like to hear us address. 
simply email us at topics at breakfastwithminerals.com. And finally, consider subscribing to our podcast, and you'll be automatically updated when our next episode of Breakfast with Minerals goes live. On behalf of Blue Cap Productions, The Fine Mineral Show, and Span Mineral Holdings, LLC, we'd like to thank you for listening. Have a great day.